Hello and welcome once again to an edition of Bill Allen's Facebook Classes. We are working through the Daily Bible in chronological order, edited by Ethelgard Smith. Great daily Bible reading tool. And if you haven't been with us up until now, then feel free to pick up one of those or get it on Kindle and uh, begin reading. Start with today's reading, read today's reading first, and then if you want to catch up, you can. We have finished the Old Testament. And we have also finished a very helpful three-day section on the uh, time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, a lot going on historically during those 400 years. And uh, Lagarde Smith does a great job giving us a great summary of that. I, uh, and we have started Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What a great thrill. I've had several saying that you were elated that we are finally in the New Testament. Me too. <laughs> That is a great blessing, and congratulations on coming this far. And again, if you're just now starting, congratulations to you on starting. Well done. Well done. You are just getting with us as we have only spent a few days in the New Testament. But boy, it goes fast, doesn't it? Uh, I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but man, I if you highlight... I. I find myself highlighting everything in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's just every single line, every single description of what Jesus said or did just seems like it's significant. And so I have to be careful because I no longer write in my Bibles uh, that I preach from. Uh, and, and that's because I had highlighted so much and bracketed so much and underlined so much that I got confused as to what I was supposed to be emphasizing when I was teaching from it. So now my Bible is one that I don't write in, but I encourage you to do that. And my daily Bible that is on Kindle, I highlight a lot in. And so I hope that you do as well. We've begun uh, this past Tuesday looking at the Gospels and the life of Jesus, uh, the marvelous stories about uh, his birth. We were able to talk about that this past Tuesday and what a wonderful story that is. If that doesn't get you in the Christmas spirit, I don't know what will. But as we get close to December, we are realizing more and more that that is just around the corner. Of course, there's nothing that says Jesus was born on December 25th. But as we read, there is everything to suggest that even angels celebrated his birth. Shepherds, wealthy magi, wise men. Uh, everyone celebrated his birth, and so it was a wonderful, wonderful thing. Even the angels in heaven could not be silenced, and so I'm glad that we do that. I truly, truly am. But after that, now we continue on, and if you've been reading along, you know that there's just one great story after another, and that's the way it's going to be uh, as we continue on through the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Remember, this is a chronological study. And so he does a bit of a compendium, a bit of a harmony of the Gospels. You've probably heard that term before, where uh, you take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you combine them. There is some repetition. Some add more details than others. Some leave stories out. Some are the only one that reports it, uh, such as a story that we'll talk about today. Uh, but that's okay. And, and if that's the kind of study that you're involved in, that's all right. And that's what we are. This is a, a harmony of the Gospels. This is... Uh, Lagarde Smith trying to share with us the whole message and and give us a uh, a text of the activities and teaching of Jesus Christ during this time. 
I love reading through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John independently. In fact, we did a Facebook study through the Gospel of Matthew a while back. We were involved in a study through the book of Luke and now the book of Acts on Wednesday nights here at West Irwin Church of Christ in Tyler, Texas. Uh, but there's also value, and there's great value in that. I love doing that, and that gets us to the purpose of why each writer was writing what he wrote by guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But doing it this way, it also allows us to be able to, to study and learn exactly what those four gospel writers had to say about the life and teaching and miracles and um, love and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They all talk about all of those things. So with that in mind, let's get back to it. Uh, we've already read about Jesus' birth after John the Baptist's birth and how his parents took him to the temple at the appropriate times according to the law and, and uh, uh, dedicated him and provided the uh, sacrifice for him. And already prophecies from Anna and from uh, uh, Simeon about Jesus and the great life that he would lead. And so now we go to his early years. And uh, we don't get much of a window into his childhood, as you know, but a few things. In Matthew chapter 2, Matthew records this visit of the wise men or magi, uh, probably uh, philosophers from the east. Uh, some have suggested uh, they were Persians. Some have suggested they were of some philosophy or religion of the day. But they had been guided by this star, and it had been revealed to them that the king of the Jews was going to be born and they needed to go and worship and so they did and when they got to uh, uh, Jerusalem they asked about him and they found out that he was uh, they continued to follow that star and uh, and they went to where he was in Bethlehem and worshiped him it's very likely that this is uh, long after uh, Jesus had been born and uh, was in that very humble setting uh, where the animals were fed but they had likely found a temporary home in, uh, in Bethlehem at that moment. And, uh, and so the Magi, the wise men, visit there. And King Herod, of course, tells them, let me know where he is so that I can go worship him too. But they know God reveals to them that that's not what they need to do. So they leave, and Herod gets mad. He finds out, well, where's the baby supposed to be born? And the prophet Micah said Bethlehem. And so... Uh, when Herod realizes he's been outsmarted and Joseph and Mary and Jesus had fled to Egypt, uh, he, goes to, uh, he goes to Bethlehem and trying to find that baby boy that was going to be the king of the Jews. He kills all of, the, all of the little ones that are two years old and under. Probably not a huge amount, but even one is way too many. Some have suggested about a dozen because of the population of Bethlehem at the time, not a large town at all. Some have suggested even um, much more. Um, but again, uh, Herod's insecurities come through. But Jesus and Joseph and Mary are saved, and they are, uh, they are told to go to Egypt. And so they do. And then finally, uh, when Herod dies and he is replaced by a new Herod, Archelaus, um, he is not much better. And so the angel tells Joseph and Mary and, Joseph and Jesus to go back to Nazareth. Luke records that they began in Nazareth went down to Bethlehem for the census, and that, that's where Jesus was born. And so as they return from Egypt, they decide not to live in their homeland of Judea, uh, where uh, both Joseph and Mary's ancestry is from, but as descendants of King David. But they go back to Nazareth in the northern province 
of Galilee, and that's where they are. And that's about all we hear about them until Jesus is 12. And then in Luke chapter 2, Luke records this visit of Joseph and Mary and Jesus uh, to the temple once a year on the festivals. And, and um, as they do that, it is, you know, it is told that's what they always did. And so this time when they do it, they leave and they figure Jesus, I'm sure, is with some of their relatives, some of their uh, travel mates, and uh, he's not. And when they realize he's not after a, a few days, they realize that, oh, no one else has him. We need to go back and find him. Sure enough, they find him in the temple, as you know, and they confront him. And Jesus says, don't you know I needed to be about my father's business? Or don't you know I needed to be in my father's house? He's there with the Jewish leaders of the day, um, uh, teaching them and asking them questions and answering theirs. And it's a very, uh, very uh, amazing story that's very well known. Even at that time, at age 12, Jesus knew who he was and what he was about. Luke chapter 2 ends with these great words in verse 52, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature <clears throat> and in favor with God and mankind. So he grew uh, socially in favor with humanity, with those of his day. He grew spiritually in favor with God. He grew uh, intellectually, mentally in wisdom, and he grew physically in stature. He became a carpenter, as was his stepfather, his earthly father, Joseph, and he was known at times as the carpenter himself. Well, we go from there, and we, and we fast forward to uh, about the age of 30 when he begins his ministry. Luke 3 and uh, other passages record John the Baptist beginning his ministry, calling on people to repent. He and his disciples baptized with the baptism of repentance. People came to him, and he challenged them. He told them, look, you need to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. You need to demonstrate your repentance and not just say it, but to actually do it, to give of your means, to be honest and ethical in all that you do. Um, and then when Jesus comes along to be baptized, John hesitates. He knows that it's the one that he's been waiting for. And he tells him, hey, I should be baptized of you. And Jesus says, no, let it be so from now. Uh, this will fulfill all righteousness. And Jesus does not is not baptized for repentance. He had no sins of which to repent. But he was baptized as a great example and a, a great part of the human race. He became fully human, just as he was fully divine. And so he shares in that in that call to be baptized as well. A great example for us. From there, uh, again, these are going to be summary uh, little statements about the, some of the things that happened because there's so many of them. And I'll try to get to as many of them as I can because Thursday, uh, next Tuesday, or let's see, next Thursday, this coming Thursday, we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. And that's where our reading is over these next few days, or today actually. So uh, we'll look at that uh, on uh, Thursday. But I do want us to take a look at some of the great stories that are associated with the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Starts off in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 with the temptations. No, not a great 50s and 60s pop band, although I do love them. Uh, but uh, the temptation that, Je that Jesus underwent uh, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, Satan comes to him and gives him three basic temptations that we read about uh, in those Gospels. And each time Jesus answers with scripture. After the first one, man shall not live by bread alone, 
Satan gets into the act and wises up and, and recites scripture to Jesus, telling him to jump off this high place because the angels won't let him uh, be heard and all of those kinds of things. And Jesus uh, realizes that Satan is manipulating Scripture. Yes, you can manipulate Scripture to uh, share a message that is not biblical. And that sounds contradictory, but it's exactly right. And we're all very much aware of that. And that's why it's important for us to do our study on our own. Because anyone can use Scripture to convince someone of just about anything. The Bible is a very large book, as you know, <laughs> having read through it for 10 months almost now. But unfortunately, people will use that uh, for manipulation rather than for encouragement and persuasion to give hope and joy in life. Uh, and so Jesus recognizes that. And, and it's interesting, I think, Satan tempts Jesus here for something that he continues to tempt him of all the way into the cross. Um, he tells him, look, you can get disciples if you want disciples. Just do something magnificent. Just do some incredible, extraordinary thing, and they'll all believe in you. But that's not why Jesus came. He came to encourage us and to uh, live a life that would call us to follow him, not force us to follow him. And he came to be our Savior. Even on the cross, uh, he was tempted by the crowd and the Jewish leaders saying, hey, come down from the cross and we'll believe you. Let's see those uh, legions of angels will believe you. Uh, but that's not what belief and faith in Jesus is all about. And so even here, during the time when Satan tempts him, at the very beginning, uh, Jesus stands firm. In John 1, verse 29, uh, John the Baptist sees that, has this great statement when he sees Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1, 29. Remember, John the Baptist is not the same John as the apostle who is writing the letter of John and who would, the gospel of John and who would write 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and also experience and write the revelation. Uh, this is John the Baptist, and we read about him being imprisoned in this reading, and soon we'll read about his being put to death by uh, King Herod. Uh, Jesus and uh, John 1 and 2, we read about his disciples. The, some of the disciples came from John, and John was fine with that. John said, he must increase. He must become great. I must decrease. I must become less. John the Baptist had such a wonderful attitude. In John 2, we read of Jesus' first miracle. Yes, it's turning water into wine at the wedding reception in Cana of Galilee. He and his family and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And I think it's significant that the first miracle that is recorded in Scripture that Jesus performs is, uh, in a public way is, is one that's at a party. It's one that's celebrating joy, and it's one that helps them to continue to share that joy. I don't think that it's, it's a, a recognition or an affirmation that drinking alcohol is okay today in 21st century America. I don't think it's anything about that. And the the alcohol and liquor that we have available today is not anything like what Jesus was doing there. We realize that it was alcoholic in nature. That's certainly true to the context. But nowhere does it justify drunkenness, and that is strictly condemned. And when you go down the grocery store at whatever grocery store you use, when you go down the aisle that, that has soft drinks and water and milk and juice, and we have so many choices today, there's just no reason based on the horrible destruction that is in its wake. 
I believe there's just no reason for us to drink alcohol at any time. I think you'd be much better off if you did not. Jesus does that, and he even tells Mary, his mother, my hour, my time has not yet come. And that sets a theme for the rest of the Gospel of John as he looks ahead to that time. And finally, in John 12, when some Gentiles want to see him because they want to believe in him, uh, Jesus finally says the hour has come, a very ominous thing. We also read about the first temple cleansing in John 2. Uh, was it at the beginning or at the end? Well, yes, it, it was. Uh, could there have been two temple cleansing? Well, that seems likely to me. Remember, the Gospels are selective. The Gospel writers are. And what they write, they write about similar things. Jesus taught similar things. So when we get to that Sermon on the Mount, as we're reading through it this week and talk about it on Thursday, we realize that there are some of those things that appear in different places in the Gospels, and that's okay. I'm sure Jesus shared them in different contexts and at different times. In John 3 and John 4, we read two very familiar stories. First of all, the encounter that Jesus has at night with a member of the ruling council, a member of the Sanhedrin, uh, a man by the name of Nicodemus. He comes and he wants to talk shop with Jesus. He comes and he kind of starts out in a very non-threatening way. And Jesus cuts him off and says, Nicodemus, you need to be born again of water and the spirit if you're going to enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus can't believe it and he's completely flustered by it. And I believe Jesus is telling him, like all of these people that John and, and, and my disciples have been baptizing, you need to do that too, born of water and spirit. Later in Titus chapter 3, Paul would say that we are, we are saved by the washing of rebirth and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. I think he's looking back to this very time when Jesus tells Nicodemus she must be born again of water and the Spirit. In John 4, Jesus interacts with a Samaritan woman, and she's already got two strikes against her. She's a Samaritan that the Jews considered outcast, this half-breed people that had their source in the time of the Assyrian exile when they brought some of the Jews back to intermingle with some of the pagan Canaanites. And uh, it was never the same between the north uh, Israel, uh, the Israelites from the north and the, the Orthodox or pure Israelites from the south near Jerusalem. Uh, but here they were and they continued to worship God. They looked back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, just as the Israelites did. But Jesus interacts with this woman. She's a Samaritan and she's a woman. And her third strike was she was a woman of questionable morality. She had had several husbands. She was living with a man who wasn't her husband. And Jesus called her out on it. Um, and to say that Jesus is okay with however we want to live, follow your heart, live, marry whoever you love, those kinds of things, that's all really nice. It Perhaps we'll get you a few votes in an election. It will certainly sell a few movies or, or uh, cards or books, but it's not scripture. There's nowhere to be found that, that kind of philosophy in scripture. Scripture tells us that we live to honor God and that our lives are best finding their fulfillment when we live according to his word and his will. And so Jesus confronts this woman. He loves her. He accepts her. He talks to her when no one else would. But he also encourages her to 
leave that life of sin, just as he would another woman that is brought to him, caught in the very act of adultery. He will tell her the same, leave your life of sin. Uh, Lover and acceptor, but call on her to live a more faithful life. That's exactly what Jesus does with this woman in John 4. And in that passage in John 4 is where we find these words, the true God is spirit, and the true worshipers will worship him in spirit and in truth. It's not about where. It's about worshiping in spirit and in truth. Worshiping with true spiritual worship in the um, uh, following the example of the great prophets of the Old Testament, of John the Baptist himself, Jesus says, you, your worship needs to be spiritual and it needs to be truthful. It needs to be genuine. Uh, your worship needs to be in spirit and in truth. Through the Samaritan woman's words, many from her villages come to hear Jesus and learn what his teaching is and believe on him as well. Later in John chapter 4, we find Jesus' second miracle recorded according to John. Uh, An official son is ill and Jesus heals him. In this example and many others, Jesus tells them, don't tell anybody. And we think, why in the world? But Matthew helps us out on that. In Matthew 12, he quotes from Isaiah 42. And he tells us about that Messiah that would come, that he would be one who does not ring his own bell or toot his own horn. He doesn't cry out. He doesn't make a big deal of himself. And that was a great description of Jesus of Nazareth. And of course, he was also looking ahead to the time when it would be right uh, for him to get that kind of following and publicity because he knew that it would lead to his death. Um, In Luke chapter 3, Luke just gives us a brief little couple of verse paragraph that John the Baptist is in prison because he preached directly to Herod and said, it's not right for you to be married to who you were married to as his brother's wife. And John calls him out on it. And as a result, he is imprisoned. And sometime down the line, as we will read, um, he will be killed because of his preaching. And Luke chapter 4 is a great passage. Jesus is at home in Nazareth, and he goes to the synagogue, as was his custom. And uh, while there, they, uh, they uh, ask, hand him the scroll of Isaiah. And he opens it up, and uh, he opens it up to Isaiah chapter 61, in fact. And he reads that marvelous passage that talks about freedom for the captives and the gospel being preached to the poor and Uh, a great passage from Isaiah 61. And then he closes the scroll. He hands it back to the synagogue leader and he sits down and it says that every eye is on him. And he says, today, this scripture is being fulfilled in your hearing. Ah, what an incredible moment. Wouldn't you love to have been there? Um, What an incredible moment. And he goes on and teaches from that particular start. Uh, and all love it for a while. And then when he begins to challenge them that just because uh, they're Jews, just because they're from Nazareth, it doesn't give them the right to live in, a, in a, a contrary way to the will of God. And because of that, they go from admiring him as one of their own to trying uh, to take his life. And that's how uh, Luke 4 goes. Uh, well, Jesus calls for solitude sometimes. He continues to uh, demonstrate his power. For example, in Mark chapter 1, 
Jesus heals a leper, and it's an amazing passage. Jesus touches the man and heals his leprosy. He didn't have to do that, uh, but he does. And what a great statement that is for us, that Jesus came fully to identify with us in our humanity and in our weakness. Um, in Mark chapter 2 is uh, some of the passages where Jesus, one of the places where he was confronted and was in tension with his, and in conflict with the Jewish leaders of his day, involved the Sabbath. In Mark chapter 2, he heals a man who has been paralyzed. And uh, the, the Jewish leaders are watching him because they don't want him, to, they, they think that if he works on the Sabbath, if he heals on the Sabbath, he's breaking the Old Testament law. And so Jesus confronts them at times over this question, and he says, is it lawful to do good or evil on the Sabbath? Shouldn't we heal this man just like we would uh, uh, pull an ox out of a ditch on the Sabbath? And certainly we should do good to these others. And so Jesus heals him and is uh, criticized for that. But Jesus himself says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was not... Um, the Sabbath was made for man. Man wasn't created for the Sabbath. And so Jesus says it's right to do this exact thing. And Mark chapter 3 is another of those passages on the Sabbath. There is a man there with a shriveled hand. And uh, Jesus asks them those questions, and they sit there in silence. And Jesus is furious, and rightly so. He's very angry with them, and Mark chapter 3 expresses that. Um, and then he heals the man, and from that time on, they began to talk about taking his life because they knew, they knew that they could never answer him, and they could never defeat him in the eyes of truth and justice and the word and will of God. And so they began to conspire and look for a way to take his life. Um, in Mark chapter 2 and also Matthew chapter 9 is the calling of Matthew or Levi. He's called by both names. Levi is, of course, the more Hebrew term. Matthew, the more Greek term. Um, uh, we go back to Levi and, as a great history uh, of uh, God's people in the Old Testament. You remember Levi was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, and the Levites were the ones who helped with the tabernacle and then later the temple. And through the Levites, uh, Moses and Aaron would come, Aaron the priest um, and John the Baptist as well. His parents were both descendants of Levi. Um, and so in Mark 2 and Matthew 9, uh, Jesus calls Levi or Matthew, and he's not a priest. In fact, he's a tax collector. He, the other Jews would consider him a sellout and an outcast to the powers that be. And yet Jesus called on him to be one of his 12 apostles. And not only that, he goes to his home that night and they have a big party. And Matthew invites everybody that would come. And that means it's other outcasts along with Jesus' disciples. And of course, the Jewish leaders who are just watching to be critical. And when they ask his disciples about that, Jesus says, look, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. I've come to call the sick. I've come to call the ones who realize their sickness. You don't. These people do. What a great example for us. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 9 and Matthew's version quotes from Hosea chapter 6. He does that a couple of times. Um, 
and Hosea saying, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus calls on them to be obedient to the law, absolutely. But a part of that law is being merciful and loving and sharing the message and the healing words of God wherever we can. Uh, Jesus confronts them with that teaching. In John chapter 5, I don't know if you caught this or not, but towards the end of John chapter 5, Jesus is talking about testimony and witnesses. The Father testifies about him. The scriptures testify about him. In fact, in John chapter 5, Jesus says, hey, you go to the scriptures, but it's the scriptures that testify about me. And we remember that, uh, you know, you need to be in that right frame of mind to hear that message and to respond to it. The Jewish leaders knew the scriptures backwards and forward, but they didn't know the God who was revealed there. We should be careful that that would not be true of us. But as he's talking about that, towards the end of John 5, Jesus affirms that there will be a resurrection. Not just that there will be a resurrection, but that there will only be one resurrection of the good and the evil. The good will be raised to life and the evil will be raised to be punished. Um, that's the teaching that's found right there in John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40. Those who would talk about different resurrections and multiple resurrections, it's just not true. It's just not faithful to scripture. Jesus says there will be one and we look forward to that day. Uh, Paul would say the same thing in 2 Corinthians 5 and in 1 Thessalonians 4. Jesus would tell parables about it, and we'll be reading those over the next few weeks. In Luke chapter 6, and this will be the last one that we share today, uh, Jesus spends all night in prayer, and then the next morning he calls 12 of the followers that have become his disciples to be his apostles. What a great statement that makes. I spoke on prayer this past Sunday. I hope that if you haven't heard that message, that you'll go to our website, westerwin.com, Irwin with an E, E-R-W-I-N, westerwin.com, and click on that Connect tab at the top and find the live stream and go to the archives. You can find my sermon and other messages and services um, there on the archives. You can also get it at our West Irwin Live Facebook page. Um, but there it's on our archives. And I spoke about prayer this past Sunday, and I mentioned something that I mention often, and that is you want to know how important prayer is. There are two words that tell us Jesus prayed. If the Son of God prayed, then I must pray as well. Aren't you excited about reading about this wonderful life, this ministry, this uh, act of love. When Jesus came, it was an act of love when he left heaven to be here and born under such humble circumstances. And he'll live a life of humility and in many ways poverty, but he will ultimately give his life on the cross for our sins and then be raised uh, as the son of God that he is. We're just now getting into it. Um, on Thursday, we'll talk about this incredible message, the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5 through 7. I'm so excited to be just beginning the wonderful story, what some have called the greatest story ever told, the story of Jesus Christ our Lord. I'll see you on Thursday.